let's see, one, two, three, four, five, un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, echad, stein, shalosh, arba, chamit, five children? Oh, I think there will be some swearing on this show, I tell you. There will be swearing. This has been your obscenity warning. I was, I felt like there was a Jay-Z joke in there, like she's left Jehovah for Hova. No. 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 But, but, but thank you for playing. For <laughs> Come again. It's because I just read Zadie Smith's essay on Jay-Z. This is how Mark connects with hip-hop culture. <laughs> like, right. Zadie Smith wrote an excellent expose. She has a hot take. Hello, Jews and interloping others. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, at least the leading Jewish podcast on iTunes. And now yes. that we have checked our metrics and fixed things and checked new boxes, it is actually clear. The metrics are clear. We have something like 83 of the top 100 Jewishly themed podcast downloads in podcast history. What? Take that, Rabbi Sachs. Yeah, he's very prolific. <laughs> it is funny if you go into the We're crushing you, son. When you go uh. in, into like who's who's there in the Jewish podcast space. Yo, Rabbi it's... David Wolpe. What's up, man? <laughs> Joke <Let's> on this. <laughs> More podcasting, like the Jews or the Christians, in terms oh, of like spiritual leaders. Cause they oh. Oh, the Christians are like every even we we are to be the number one Jewish podcast is to have as many downloads as the three hundred eighty fourth best <laughs> evangelical podcast. They are they are on on fuego. They they have got Good us. For them. Uh, yeah, they know what they're doing. You don't spend two thousand years of trying to proselytize the world and not learn something useful in the podcast. I mean, pod- yeah, it's perfect. That's right. It's basically what we're doing. <laughs> Slowly, but surely. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week, as ever, by senior writer, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom. Shalom. And deputy editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. Hi. And joined this week as well by a Jew of the Week, Girls Leadership founder, Rachel Simmons, who also has written numerous books about building confidence in girls and female empowerment and all sorts of things that I have a lot of questions about. And also a Gentile of the Week, a former Jehovah's Witness, Linda Kerr who has written a book about leaving the Jehovah's Witness fold, ceasing to witness for Jehovah, as it were. I mean, I'm so excited about Linda because we we talk so much, I feel like, about Jews leaving, you know, off the derech, right. which is religious Orthodox Jews who sort of leave or, or waver in their commitment. But we actually have not explored this from this angle. Yeah. And we also and to see... say Jehovah. Without yeah, any repercussion. True. That's right. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. 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 We don't have to spell it out. Nope. We don't have to put dashes in the middle. We do not. Yep. Uh, news of the Jews. What's up, Stephanie? What? Any news of the Jews? Okay. I have a story that I really enjoyed this week. Um, it came to us from our Italian intern, Simona Somek, who is just incredible. <laughs> what an way. intern yeah, that guy he's is. Unbelievable. So basically, there's within Kashrut or the kosher or the kosher stuff, the, the Jewish laws of, of keeping kosher. Vegetables are sort of like a thorny thing because a lot of basically bugs are, are are not cool, right? They're not they're prohibited. You can't have bugs, and not, so not kosher, right. and so you can have like locusts. There are some bugs that are, but yeah, but tiny, like tiny little like, bugs, yeah. that might live on your lettuce. So so there's like a lot of literature and a lot of rabbinic back and forth about how to like wash vegetables so that you're not you know so you get all the bugs because if if not it's not kosher and you can't eat it. Here's where this gets especially thorny: artichokes. Now, Carciofi alla Giudia, which I, whose name I am butchering, is this amazing fried artichoke uh, dish that's sort of a staple of, of the Jewish Roman cuisine. And it's for Italian Jews, this is like their thing. And so basically, that's their bomba. 
Yeah, I mean, and this is this amazing, beautiful brisket. food, and it's an example of a community that has its own traditions, but is also part of the world around it, right? Like, you'll get that that dish all over Rome, and it's not just Jewish people who eat it, but, you know, its origins are with the Jewish community. So basically, the Israeli rabbinate bum, bum, bum. steps in and is like, guys, you really can't clean. You can't be sure you're steps cleaning artichoke. And is like, you can't to be the artichoke. Because, because bugs might live deep in the artichoke. And in some variations, you have to deep fry the full artichoke. So you can't actually do the, there's like a specified cutting, like the the OU and Star K, like they have these guidelines online, basically to how to cut and wash there's each vegetable. There's an artichoke moil that, just, just a tip <laughs> of the artichoke. <laughs> it just snips the, uh, and, and basically, because uh, you fry them whole in a lot of cases, you, so you can't, you can't clean be them. sure. And so Italy, the Jews of Italy, which is a small community now, is like, no, you actually can't tell us what we ca- that we can't eat this staple, this like thousand year old food, because you think it has bugs in it. And there's more to this too, because the Roman Jews, Italian Jews, have this thing. They claim they claim, and I don't know the scholarship on this. I'm always we get these stories, and sometimes I'm helping edit stories where there'll be a line in there about the Italian Jews who are neither Ashkenazi nor Sephardi nor you know. Um, Persian, nor like they claim that they are an unbroken line going back to temple times they, of Jews living in Italy in the just, boot. They're just excitable Jews, right? They're they're just exactly, and so their cuisine to that like everything that is Italian Jewish to them is this very specific thing that Sacred. no other Jews in the world have, and also their numbers are dwindling fast, right? So that's it's like you if you take their artichokes from them, you might as well. Lop off the last of their you heads. You could take off the artichoke from my cold, dead, slimy, covered in oil. <laughs> By the way, they're and delicious. So I don't know why anyone would want to you say know, it. Can, can we say something about artichokes? I have a lot to say about I like artichoke hearts, but I don't like the full That's the leaf. thing. Artichokes are like the assholes of the vegetable world. You put in so much work for such a little payoff. They're like, yeah, we're delicious. Sit here and scrape this leaf with your teeth for the next 38 minutes, and you'll get like seventh of an ounce of flesh. Like, you know what, artichoke? You're not, you're not all that. I'm you, sorry. Well, that's like Judaism. You know who's delicious <laughs> and doesn't make any demands on me? A freaking avocado. It's not like Judaism. Judaism I thought has you have to, a lot you of have to work. You have to work. Yeah, and but then there's a lot of meat. You get the heart. It is like Judaism. Well, it's heart. like it's not going to be fun. No, it's not going <laughs> to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But there is some small the payoff. Rewards, at the, end. the payoffs. <laughs> but how about the how about this, Leo? Where I thought you were going with that is you always like an opportunity to attack the the Israeli chief rabbinate. Well, uh, yeah, that comes next. We're just but like this har- is like yeah, like stay in your lane, guys. Stay in your lane. I know this stay. is literally your lane to to make these sort of <laughs> distinctions, but it's like no, but this is ridiculous. It's, it's just an attack on a culture, like to not see this for what it is, which is essentially like a very offensive thing to do to a very, I'm very... sorry. Have you run out of freaking problems in the world that you're looking at artichokes? I mean, if that's where we yeah. are with, with world jury, it's like, uh, Rabbi Shlomo, uh, you know what the most important problem facing Jews today? It's like anti-Semitism? No. The Labor Party? No. Hamas? It is the Karchofi <laughs> ala Jew. Like, guys, <laughs> right, the Jews know. in Rome and their artichokes. Anyway, anyway I'm on team, team Italy here. So we're standing yeah. with, we're team Italy, oh, hashtag stand with artichokes, Italian yeah. artichokes. Apparently people were using the hashtag just we carciofi. Just we intense. a good TV show, Jewish Law and Order. <laughs> in the halachic oh system, the people are represented by two separate but equal authorities. <laughs> the Israeli rabbinate and the rest of the world. And everybody else. These, These are, are their, their stories. stories. <laughs> bum, bum. Lee, I'll top that. Can you top that? Uh, look, there's only one news story that matters to me this week, yeah. uh, and and that is a new Adam Sandler movie. New Adam Sandler and movie. And I know for a lot of people, 
perhaps a lot of people in this room or some people in this room, uh, you would say Adam Sandler still makes movies uh, since, you know, uh, Happy Gilmore or Billy Madison. And the answer is yes. Uh, him and Chris Rock play uh, respectively the father of the bride and the father of the groom. Uh, so from the trailer, Adam Sandler, who talks like this the whole, the whole time with the trailer, uh, is like a very cheap Jewish man. Is like, we will have this at the Best Western, and I will buy Toblerone as the dessert table. Doing really good things for yeah. our, our people in, in their image. And Chris Rock is like the super high rolling surgeon who is like, let me pay for this. Adam Sandler, no, this is my daughter. It's it's that. It's really cool. So he's a I, proud Jew, but he's a cheap Jew. So let's just note <laughs> name that. Can represent named him. Shlomo Levenstein. You don't pay retail. So um, I, I honestly, just keeping with with the theme of total redonkulousness, I'll just say that I've been intrigued by all the uh, stuff about Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. There was a wonderful Twitter thread. I'd only know, I, I only know about Twitter threads when someone alerts me to them and then I lurk on them because I'm not on Twitter anymore. But um, there, are all these, there are all these other Michael Cohens who are sending out tweets basically saying, not that Michael Cohen. And this resonated with me because lately – there's actually been a proliferation of Mark Oppenheimer's. It used to just, it used to be that I had one of those names like Stephanie Butnick or Leah Leibowitz that was pretty, pretty reliably, if you met uh, a Mark Oppenheimer, it was, it was me. And um, now, so there used to be the Scrabble champion from South Dakota. There's oh, naturally. There's yes. an en- <laughs> who, else? Right. who else would there be? There's an endocrinologist from South Dakota, also active on the uh, deep northern uh, Dakota er- then there was Scrabble the, scene. The L.L. Bean enthusiast from Minnesota. <laughs> right. So there was, this, there was the Scrabble playing endocrinologist. But lately, and then there was the teenage kid from South Africa who has a ponytail and was always at protests getting uh, in trouble. But it's but, also a debate champion. But, but he was also, no, but he was also a debate champion. So there was some confusion there. And he then progressed his way through the University of Cape Town or Witzwatersrand or something. And he's now a lawyer in South Africa making uh. news, making news. So there's the still got the ponytail. There's South African ponytail man, Mark Oppenheimer. There's endocrinologist who plays Scrabble. But also on the scene, there's executive search firm headhunter Mark Oppenheimer, who works for Marlin Hawk, which apparently is some big international search firm. And he's kind of risen up lately. Like five years ago, you weren't seeing a lot of that Mark Oppenheimer on Google. Um, all of which is to say, do I have a Google alert on myself? I do. And am I annoyed that other Mark Oppenheimers are moving in on my turf? You are. I am. But but at least I'm not Michael Cohen. Me and this girl, we've been falling in love beneath a quarter moon, beneath a quarter moon. Me and this girl, I've been living above on a road called Oppenheimer. All right, so that was the news of the Jews we tried to record in advance last week, but the best laid plans, right? Since that time, uh, Natalie Portman, uh, otherwise known as some as Queen of World Judaism, has made news. And so we dropped back into the studio to talk a little more news of the Jews. And by studio, I mean Josh's apartment. All right. So uh, by now, our listeners have read a lot about this story if they tune into the to the Jewosphere at all. But do you want to summarize from your point of view what happened, Liel? So in November, Natalie Portman uh, agreed to accept a Genesis Prize, which is hilariously branded as the Jewish Nobel. You know, the one in which... We really needed one. Right, in which not just like 37% of winners are Jewish, but like 87% of winners are Jewish. Um, It's sort of like the football Super Bowl, as it were. That's that's right, the the World Series of... Of Of baseball. And... um, and she said yes. Uh, the prize, as anyone with access to Google could have said, is is uh, jointly distributed by the Jewish Agency and the Israeli government. And she said, "Yeah, I'm very proud. Uh, her parents are Israeli born, or she's Israeli born. She was really happy to 
accept it, and and it was not a big controversy. Some, like myself, wondered why give a prize to a middling actress, but never mind. Everything was everything you. was calm. You're um, a monster. Last week, Natalie Portman releases a statement that says, because of recent events, unspecified, uh, I I am I don't feel comfortable. Uh, going to Israel and receiving this award. And so obviously everyone started speculating, you know, what recent events are you talking about? What happened between November and now? And then Natalie Portman released this really kind of strange statement in which she said even less than she had said before, but something like, I don't support BDS, but I don't like Bibi Netanyahu and I don't like atrocities, so I'm not coming. Bibi Netanyahu, by the way, for those of our listeners keeping score at home, was still the prime minister of Israel six months ago, okay. as, as he'd been for the past nine years. But, you know. So you're leaving out like a few different pieces. And I can I have a lot of feelings about this Genesis Prize, um, more feelings than it's worth. Um, well, actually, it's worth $2 million, so never mind. Basically, what happened was the fighting in Gaza. Like, what happened was what's going on in Gaza. Hold and on. so today, today. Uh, an Israeli TV reporter, today being Tuesday as we record this, an Israeli TV reporter uh, revealed an alleged exchange between Natalie Portman's representative and the Genesis Prize people in which she said specifically, allegedly, that it was because the war in Gaza. So basically what happened was she accepted this war award, which is is kind of a silly award. They've given it to people in need of money and, and, like and acclaim Douglas like Michael Douglas, Michael, Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg. And the idea is that they then give it to charities of their choosing as opposed to like, I don't know, actual people who need the money and would right. are doing cool things. But so she basically said, I'm not doing it. I'm not comfortable doing something in Israel. And that was like the initial statement. And people went nuts. And she was clear. It's sort of seemingly obviously uh, alluding to what was, you know, the conflagration in Gaza. But then she posted something on Instagram because everyone just went nuts, obviously. Right. Like it's like it's it's Natalie Portman. It's Israel. It's money. And it's like has everything the story. And so she basically said, like, let me speak for myself. I'm not, I don't want to be seen as endorsing Bibi Netanyahu, who, who would be giving a speech at the event. Her team didn't handle this well. Right, you have to know, you can't, you have to use the kid gloves when you're, when you're exactly, dealing with like these it's, crazy topics. It's, it's more than something that you could just, you know, blame on like, kind of like a little bit of shoddy PR. Like if Natalie Portman came out right then and there and said, guys, listen, I don't care what you say. The things that are happening in Gaza are really wrong. I can't get behind it. You could say whatever you want. I'm out. Goodbye. I would have been like, you know what? I find I find that politically like super moronic. I find that, you know, falling into Hamas manipulation like morally vile, but it's your opinion. Cause cake is under hate. Do whatever you want. Express it. Stand firm. Totally fine. You have that right. But she never did that. She accepted the award. Then she kind of weaseled out of it, giving no reason. And only now, a week later, is she kind of like trying to kind of thread that needle. That is. The thing that really bothers me the most about this, it's not just about the politics. It's, it really kind of is, this is, and I mean this sincerely, this is why she's such a shitty actress. You know, oh it's, this, it's this absolute lack of ability to commit to any kind of like tough moral standing. Be like, I don't care what you think. This is my truth. I'm running with it, which is what every good artist does. Instead, she's like, guys, I'm, I'm not for BDS, but I'm also not for BB, but I'm also not for this, but I'm also not for that. Like, what are you for? You're an actress with tens of millions of followers. Oh my God. This is Come out insane. And make a statement. You are the only person who is like uh, anti Natalie Portman as an no, actress. It makes no sense to me. Mark, what do you think? I have six million Israelis behind me. Number one, 
I think Natalie Portman has had some stupid roles. I don't think she's one of the greatest actresses ever, but I have a very soft spot for her because she's in one of the great ever New England themed, you know, frosty Thanksgiving <laughs> season uh, nostalgia. <laughs> Uh, like she's in a, she, she did what a movie that's really saying? in my wheelhouse. Like if there was a movie that nailed Petach Tikva as well as Beautiful Girls Nails, kind of like New England, frosty, reu- Thanksgiving reunion, back with the family again, uh, the way that Beautiful Girls does, you would love that movie. Also, I think she's beautiful. Also, she like reps the Jews. Like for all sorts of reasons, I like Natalie Portman. Okay, that's number one. Uh, number two. Um, the Genesis Prize is obviously stupid. Uh, who knows what they're supporting? Exactly. The fact that they gave it to yeah, we all agree on right? that. The fact that they gave it to Michael Bloomberg and then to Michael Douglas, and that it's like these people are not major Jews in any way. They're major and they're Jewish, but they're not major Jews. Unclear what the Genesis Prize is for. It seems to be just a a big self pleasuring for yeah. for yeah. I mean, for some donors somewhere, and um. You know, it's a stupid prize. And they, you know what they should do instead of giving the Genesis Prize? They should give it to poor people or puppies. Like, they should give it to people no, who don't have anyone giving them anything. No, they should not give it to puppies. If anything, they should use and, it to solve the feral cat um, infestation <laughs> in, right. in Israel. Fair enough. Yeah. So that's number two. The number switch, three, if you will. Number three, I think, Liel, Liel, I think you're being a little disingenuous. It was obviously the case that she was registering protest uh, toward what she saw, at, what a lot of us saw, me included, as disproportionate use of force in Gaza over the past few weeks. And that's perfectly fine. And like, I think that people should have their political views and if she and whether this was support for BDS or just opposition to Gaza or whatever, so she's entitled to her views. BDS. Natalie Portman does not no, support BDS. I know she doesn't, but I was saying even had it been, she's entitled to her views. Here's my problem, and I think it's allied with Liel's problem, but it's actually a little bit different, um, which is that most actors are not subtle, thoughtful, deep, profound political thinkers. They're, they, they And when they take political positions, the, they... It goes awry very often. This is not an unusual case. Susan Sarandon has stepped in it before. Others have stepped in it before. Because here's the thing. The genius of a good actor, or even just a charismatic or poised or magnetic actor, is their acting. The genius of a dancer is their dancing. The genius of a poet is their poetry. It's not political pontificating. And our expectation that people who are good at one thing, like appearing beautiful on screen, or acting on stage, or dancing, or whatever, or sculpting, should have well-thought-out political views, or that we should care what they think is really stupid. So, I mean, I I want to leave some room for for a- actors to use their platform. I'd, I'd throw athletes in as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, to are you advocating th- a, a you band? Shut up and dribble. I, I'd, I'm not saying shut up and dribble, but I am saying that it's because, look, if people have a platform, it's OK to use it. And, and I support people and I hope that they use it well. It is, however, a major sickness of our society that public school teachers and sanitation workers and union organizers and all sorts of people with thoughtful analyses of work that needs to be done can't get a hearing. But but Kardashians can. I'm glad that when Kardashians have a hearing, they use it to bring attention to the Armenian genocide. Nevertheless, I always want to embed this in the reality that we are a 666 society that we care that much what Hollywood stars and starlets Okay, I, I'm going to jump in here. Amen. Guys, for, that's that. I wildly disagree with that. But I mean, I think I think that people step in it a lot. But I think to say like, oh, to a basketball player, just 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 play and not to acknowledge that like your identity and who you are is is something you are able to comment on. Like, I think it actually is quite powerful to see sports figures standing up against you know violence against black men in America. Like, I think that actually those are the people who it's most powerful to see it from because these people have this platform. I get it that Susan Sarandon steps in it, and I get it that they're not necessarily. Act, even even the most articulate actor or actresses can can mess up when talking about something that's not scripted. However, 
you can't have it both ways. Leah, when, when you wrote a piece that when Natalie Portman was was awarded this, right, that they announced that she was going to be the recipient, you were like, why does it have to go to an actress? It seems really it seems really stupid and a waste of time. That may be the case. But now Natalie Portman has actually said, I'm a person. I'm a person with beliefs and thoughts and feelings, and I do not want to support this. And so now she's actually transcended being just a silly that's, actor that's, who reads that's lines. That's my problem. My problem is she didn't do that. But you can't she have came it both out and ways. said, guys, look, very specifically, here's what's happening in Gaza. Here's she why it's bad. essentially said that. No, she didn't. The statement was like, I am very troubled by atrocities. Read, so let me read, let me read the what courage of your convictions Natalie Portman posted on Instagram. Yeah, read her statements. My decision not to attend the Genesis Prize ceremony has been mischaracterized by others. Let me speak for myself. I chose not to attend because I did not want to appear as endorsing Benjamin Netanyahu, who was to be giving a speech at the ceremony. Who? This is the rap genius commentary. Who was prime minister when you accepted the she's, ceremony and you knew he was giving a she's speech talking when about you his accepted it? Reaction to what? She's no, talking she's about not. something that's happened no, no, since. You're reading into it. She never By said that. By the same token, I am not part of the BDS movement and do not endorse it. I'm just gonna I'm gonna step in and say she's like an outspoken pro-Israel, pro-Jewish actress, and that is so rare. And the fact that she's we're just like jumping on this. Okay, where is she? Like many Israelis and Jews around the world, she was born in Israel. I can be critical of the leadership in Israel without wanting to boycott the entire nation. That's I obvious. treasure my Israeli friends and family, Israeli food, books, art, cinema, and dance. I'm glad she likes hummus. Israel, we can all agree on that. Israel was created exactly 70 years ago as a haven for refugees from the Holocaust. That is a heinous statement. No, it was not. <laughs> Israel is a return of an indigenous people to its native homeland, <laughs> not some kind of band-aid Leo, for six Leo, million murdered. Leo, what she, Leo, listen, okay, enough. But, Leo, what she's saying. saying but because I care about Israel, I must stand up against violence, corruption, inequality, and abuse of power. You cannot... Corruption, like we all agree, maybe is not. Corruption is just about, a tr- you know. But really? you know what? I want to say this. You know what she actually should have done? She should have gone to the ceremony and went to give her That's speech. Right. As an adult. She should have just like torn it apart and just like made the headlines that way. Amen to that. It should have been like Natalie Ocella. She should basically. have been dressed as Queen Amidala. Like, yeah, I, 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 look, baby. I agree with that. I, I, I. Interestingly, I think we all kind of agree that if you're going to take a stand, give, give the speech. Yes, that's right. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our Jewish guest this week is Rachel Simmons. She's the author of Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. Her 2005 book, Odd Girl Out, was a New York Times bestseller and helped launch a social reckoning with female bullying in schools. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be with you guys. And when I say here, I don't mean here because you're not in the studio. But No, I'm at Smith College. Where you work, helping women. Helping the people, helping the youth. (laughs) So, so Rachel... (laughs) 
it's this, it's interesting because this book touches us at different points, right? Mark and Liel both have daughters. And so I imagine they were reading it from that perspective. But And your, your book is sort of written to parents of daughters. But I was reading it and I just like went, it, it was kind of a difficult experience for me because I was sort of reliving my whole life. And your the book is sort of about these 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 young girls who feel such crazy expectations and such hot like they just make themselves crazy. They have, they're depressed. They're stressed. They're in high school. How, what is it? I mean, the is question it, is, what is going on? What is going on? Because <laughs> what is the haps? Yeah, like this rang true to me, and I was a young girl not so long ago. But when did this start? I mean, I want to start off by saying that I didn't want to write a book like this. This was not necessarily my jam. I'm not a psychologist, and I really am a leadership development specialist. But in working with young women and doing a lot of traveling and working with other schools, there's sort of this indisputable issue with anxiety and depression, and the data also bears that out, that we have. Un- I always say when I'm talking to especially high school kids in an assembly, I'm like, you guys are the most unhappy generation on record, and then they all kind of like weirdly start applauding, like they're proud of themselves. <laughs> we did like, it. Yeah. yeah like, they won. Like, okay, Number guys. Number one. Another Number reward. One. <laughs> right. They're like, we'll take any award we can. So, um, yeah, so I think it's just been this, this kind of rising tide that if you are an educator, if you're a parent, you see it. Like, these kids just feel not only this sense that nothing they do is enough, but um, they also feel that they have to be busy all the time in order to feel valuable. So they're burning out as well. So where did this come from? I mean, when you say they're the, you know, generations are obviously myths, right? We all, anyone who's done social science knows that like you can't cut it off and say, well, if you were born after this, you do point out at one point that there is this generation now starting with births around 1995 that has never known a world without the internet. Is that... Is that the important thing? Uh, I'm so not going to get into that bandwagon of like impugning the internet. I actually feel like that no, lets everybody else off the hook. You're kind of nice to the internet in this book. Surprisingly nicer than I yeah. would have been. Well, I mean, I think I, that's a whole other conversation. But I do think that we actually do everybody a disservice by acting like social media is the end of days for for kids. I actually think it's a couple of things. I mean, one is just the increasing competitiveness of college admissions as I sit here on a college campus um, a few feet away from the admissions building, right? It's never been more exacting and more enigmatic a process in terms of just getting in, right? So there's more college kids, there's fewer elite colleges. So there's a sense that um, nothing I can do is enough. And also, this I call it the college application industrial complex, like just this crazy pressure to let your worthiness be defined by whether or not you hear yes or no from the college of your choice. So you have that. I think you just also have a generation of parents that is really intensely identified with their kids' successes. I'm a parent myself. And I think it's sort of foolish to not identify with your kids. It's like, hi, I'm just a vessel for my kid anyway. Like, how am I not supposed to be identified with their successes? And um, we also haven't learned to just calm the F down. I think that anxiety that parents have about their children failing and protecting them from failure, that has created a highly structured generation that is very good at succeeding, but not so good at failing. Hmm. So I have four daughters, 11, 9, 7, and 4. I know this. I know, because you're a listener. You're the man. You are like, you could write the book. Well, I mean, (laughs) I mean, but I couldn't. Let's let's wait and see. I could, right. Um, But I couldn't write the book because, you know, I look at my kids and they seem fine. I mean, they seem, and, uh, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. I understand that, right? I'm looking at my kids and I'm inclined to think that they're fine anyway. But I wondered as I was reading this book if it's about kids from different kinds of towns than my kids are from. Because, um, you know, my kids are in New Haven Public Schools where as far as I can tell, and I think my kids are pretty frank with me though, who knows, right? There is not this intense pressure to load up on extracurriculars. There's not this intense pressure to be thin. I've never heard 
thinness talk from my kids at all. Uh, it just, it, none of it resonated with me. I'm going to be honest. Like it, I know that it's a thing because I read you and I read other authors and I see movies, but is this a sort of like Newton, Massachusetts, Scarsdale, Lower Marion? Have I written a know? book about rich kids? Thank, thank the you. Question. Well, and rich white kids. Yeah. Um, so the answer, I have two, two answers. One is the demographic that I'm writing about is ages 16 to 24. So your kids haven't aged into that bracket yet. And I also have kind of, I've explicitly chosen to live in a community that tries to reject a lot of the values that I think are so toxic. So it certainly may be true that where you live, there's a lot less pressure. And I hope that's the case. That being said, I really specifically tried to talk to a range of students, including first-generation college students who often suffer from intense imposterism on campus, um, just a sense that they don't belong, that they don't know what everyone else knows, um, as well as students who are identify as marginalized populations, whether um, because they're gender nonconforming or because they are, um, you know, an underrepresented minority on campus. Every group that I'm talking to, and obviously this is a, I'm not going to necessarily talk to um, the people who are telling me or include the people who are telling me how happy they are all the time. This is a book about why we see the data of young women suffering. Um, I see suffering happening in lots of different populations, maybe for different reasons, but I'm working with them in the same way, meaning I'm helping everybody fight that sense of imposterism, though it may be coming from a different source. I found this book so interesting because... um, I think there's two important time periods, right? There's high school and then there's college. Like it wasn't until I got to college that I actually heard the term effortless perfection, which was like as part of an initiative that university was working on to try to make women not feel like they need to do this. But high school is seems to be laying a lot of the groundwork. And I'm curious because you do work at uh, Hewitt High School in, in Manhattan. What do you see there? Well, I think you see, um, I mean, I also want to sort of say that part of what we're seeing is... Um, like a symptom of girls having more opportunity than they've ever had before. And I think it's important to name that. And in some ways, this is the kind of underbelly of that process. And so at a, at a school like Hewitt, where you see, uh, you know, high levels of, of affluence, it's in Manhattan, there are a lot of very well-off families that want their daughters to have the absolute best opportunity. Um, I mean, we are a school in New York where we're trying to actually be a counterpoint to some of that pressure. So we want our kids not to have to give up their self-worth and their wellness in the drive for success. But having said that, you're also talking about the epicenter of girl power, right, of a place where we want girls to be able to do anything. The problem is when they hear they have to be everything. And that's the issue. Is part of this that parents have gotten so bad at, at modeling authentic responses to the world and and and, you know, the search for joy? I mean, I feel like part of why kids might be saying I should take a fifth AP and then I should practice this even though I don't enjoy it. And it is because where else is their meaning? Yeah, is, is because their parents are In saying the meaning life. comes from from making partner and from having a second home and from all. And it's, and it's like if I mean, I like to think that my kids notice that the things I value are, um, you know, like reading books and watching stupid TV and hanging out with them and not money, stuff, whatever, and that that will be transmitted. So, I mean, how, you know, don't kids often just replicate the culture that their parents model for them? It's so true. And actually, in the book, I talk about some of the more recent studies, which are actually being able to illustrate what teenagers actually think their parents stand for in contrast to what they say their parents tell them. So in other words, the teenagers are saying to the researchers, my mom says she wants me to be happy, but I know what she really wants is for me to go to like 
a college that I don't really want to go to. Mm-hmm. So they're able to differentiate between their parents' um, achievement-related beliefs. And those kids tend to be, it's not that there's a problem with pushing achievement for your children. It's that it has to come in partnership with an emphasis on kindness, on character, on caring, on watching stupid TV with your kids. One of the things I, I really encourage parents to do is just think about like, what does it mean to you to have a good life? And what are the values for you associated with that? Is it, you know, lifelong learning, which I'm sure for some of you, that's probably part of it. You know, is it service? And then if you think about that as your dashboard, you know, how much of that are you communicating to your child? Because I think we have this tendency to believe that our kids get to like that eye rolling age or whatever, and they're blowing us off and they don't care. And And then they don't notice, but they do. They keep noticing. 100%. Like, I always say that, like, you know, we think our kids stop mimicking us when in preschool when they dropped that F-bomb by accident because they heard us say it. That, That never happened to me actually um one of the one of the benefits of being a single mom is that you don't end up cursing a lot in front of your kids because you're not talking to somebody um that much in front of them however um my point is the mimicry continues it's just like a higher order mimicry so they're like watching how you respond to losing your keys or they're watching what happens when you burn dinner and they're learning from how you respond to stress so you do a uh, work in jewish schools as well and i'm curious you know this idea we think of jewish schools as this place where are, build- are we better no, like our, is in, I'm in, a, in a Solomon Schechter lifer. Do you guys know that? Oh, we no. do. You went to Charles Smith. Uh, so yeah. you, do, oh, wow. You went with, with, oh, wow. with Melissa the Lerman. Was Melissa Lerman there? Yes. And Josh Cahan? Wait, they're all my class. How yeah. do you know this? Because I went to college with them. Oh, right. Yaleys. Yeah. Okay. No, your yeah. high school turned out some of the best people I know. They are. Yeah. My mom was also a lifelong Jewish educator there who I had to call to prep for this conversation. <laughs> but so... Yeah, like in a school where there's a height, you know, Hewitt, there's no sense that you're, I mean, there's a community, but at a Jewish school, you're basically, you send your kids there because you want them to get these extra values of of, of Jewishness and of service and of like tikkun olam, whatever that means in, in a high school. But like, what's actually happening there? Is it the same thing we're seeing everywhere else? Mm, I Well, I mean, I feel like the school I went to has become a pretty hardcore prep school, right? Like wearing the clothing of the Jewish school. So I, it, it, I mean, I'm not saying that they're not doing character education there, hopefully, as I get 10 emails from them saying, why are you um, imputing the school? I'm not at all. I mean, I think there is a lot of character education. And I mean, just thinking about things like, I was talking to my mom about it, like, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Like, the you know, the idea from the Baal Shem Tov that like in every human individual, there's a messianic spark that needs to be activated or actualized so that they can engage in action and repair the world. I mean, I think those are powerful messages. And I I also wanted to kind of flag, um, I'm going to forget that book. I think it was called Merrymakers and Something Else by the woman who uh, profiled Jewish girls in an Orthodox community. It was a book. Um, And she talked about basically how these girls who grew up in the Jewish community were incredibly assertive. They um, were kind of defying a lot of the statistics that uh, that uh, around depression and anxiety that befall adolescent girls. And so... um, I do think that there's something going on in the Jewish community that that is very powerful, for sure. I've always noticed that the only two good parenting books in the world are both by Jewish women and explicitly talk about Jewish values. I mean, one is by our colleague Marjorie Ingle, Mamala Knows Best, and the other one is Blessing of a Skin Knee by Wendy Mogul. And those are, those are the only – there's no other good parenting book that's ever been written. And I just <laughs> – Other than – I mean, but of course, mine would be included in that. In that, I, in that. I was thinking there's an – That's an awkward moment, Mark. But this to me Broader is not category a parenting book. Thank you so much. <laughs> this to me, I found, I found really – it just a fa- I had a just like a whole experience a reading it. Social science slash yeah. thriller. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot going on here, but I'm, I'm I mean, I don't want to let us off the hook so easily, right? Like, there must be a way in which Jewish kids at Jewish schools and Jewish kids at not even at you know mainstream and public and private schools 
they have to, we have, you know, there's this whole like doctors and lawyers thing. Like there must be a, an, an added pressure in these, in these Jewish communities to, to succeed. And I'm so curious how that plays out for girls. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think I think the the emphasis on service and tikkun olam is is really important. I also want to say that that one of the things we know about girls' leadership and the research on girls' leadership in general is that they tend to gravitate towards a definition of leadership that is a, that is about public service and changing the world. So, and that may have to do with the way that we socialize girls to take care of other people and to worry about what other people think, which of course is one of the reasons why girls and women ruminate so much and think a lot in a good way about their friendships and their relationships and whether or not people are mad at them. So I think it's all kind of wrapped up, right? I mean, there's there's the good of these of the pressure that that girls are under to be mindful of of serving others. And then there's some challenging parts of that. And this book is about helping girls just stay rooted to themselves and and take the good from that and let go of some of the more toxic aspects of it. All right. So we have two final questions. The first one is, what kind of Jewish name is Simmons? <laughs> uh, I believe it was Simonovich, and it was shortened uh, at some port. Okay. I think you should start writing under Rachel Simmons slash Simonovich. I think it's time to reclaim that. Uh, now okay. you're going to ask what kind of Jewish name Rachel, Rachel is. is, right? is Liel, and Liel's not going to say anything in this interview. That was like half the reason I wanted to be on. So he could just. But I forgot Liel was here. I Liel, I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, really, I'm, I can't. I actually can't leave without one tough question from you. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an ally. Really? Isn't that the word this you're is, saying? I'm astonished. I mean, you, truly. I, am I not supposed to listen? Is that not the, the role of uh, white males in the 21st century? That's more like There it. you go. There you there go. You okay, go. I can right. go now. All right. No, 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 no. And the second question was, we, you know, you, we've been in the weeds a little bit about parenting. Although I did not think this was a parenting book. I saw it as a kind of, just to defend myself there, I saw it as, as a social science book um, identifying some big and important trends. But we've been in the weeds a little bit about little things that you can do. But- do you have like a macro theory of parenting? Like my macro theory, theory of parenting is like, don't worry about it. Like stress, stress is the big You're problem. You're such a dude. Like stress is the big problem. Like don't worry about dirt. Don't worry about gluten. Don't worry about, you know, like immunize your kids, teach them to swim and they'll be fine. Do you have a macro theory of like, well, how, what's, what does a good parent look like? Uh, I actually totally agree with you. And um, I feel very blessed not to be a very anxious parent, which is why I'm with you on that. Like I actually feel like, there's this thing that kids do, which Mark and Leal um, know very well, which is what when your kid is learning to walk and they fall on their face, the very first thing they do is look at you. Mm-hmm. And they want, they're asking a question. The question is, am I okay? And like, is what just happened okay? And based on the look on your face, they're going to either start screaming hysterically or they're going to keep walking. And I actually believe that that is sort of my macro theory, which is like, your kid's always going to be looking at you to ask the question, am I okay? And like, we have to chill out and tell them it's okay. I mean, if it's not okay, fine. But like, the more we can tell them okay, the stronger that they're going to be. The other thing I think in terms of my macro theory is you have to be able to say no. You have to set boundaries and you have to stick with those boundaries. And the kids really long for those boundaries. And honestly, I would say the biggest issues that I see parenting across the age range, whether it's teenagers or five-year-olds, is it's the parent who has trouble saying, you need to go spend 15 minutes in your room and really sticking with that. Amen. Rachel Simon- Simonovic. <laughs> Rachel Simonovic. <laughs> the book is Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
Hey, you want to hear something cool, J. Crew? Listen to this. It's a review from iTunes, a well-written review by someone of taste and judgment. A delightfully funny, tastefully irreverent show featuring a crew of the Jewiest Jews on the air. The more I listen to this podcast, the more I love it, and the more I feel welcomed into the worldwide cabal of international Yiddishkeit. In all seriousness, this podcast and the community around it is welcoming, warm, and responsive. Toda Rabah Unorthodox. That's from M. Singa, posted April 13th. Thank you, M. The thing about those reviews is it actually bumps us higher up on iTunes. Please go review the show. Please do, because that helps people find the show. If we read your review, send us a screenshot via email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and we'll mail you some unorthodox stickers. Thanks to everyone who reviews us or spreads the word in all those myriad ways. Look, you deserve more unorthodox, whoever you are. So sign up for the newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Search for our Facebook group on Facebook and join in. It's really a lot of fun. It's also the nicest corner of the internet. People are not mean to each other on the unorthodox. Orthodox Facebook group. Hey, if Facebook ain't enough and our newsletter ain't enough, why am I saying ain't? I'm a, I'm a grammar snob. If they aren't enough, we're planning another live show at the JCC of Manhattan in July. It's going to be a good one. But if you just want a little of me, a little Mark Oppenheimer, I will be at the First Church of West Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut on May 3rd, speaking on the topic, Four Little Jews Writing About Religion as a Father of Four. You can Google that on the web, First Church West Hartford. And I will be at Greenwich Reform Synagogue on Friday, May 18th to do shots of schnapps with you, but not too many because I have to drive back to New Haven that night. To book me or any of us or all of us for a live show, email producer Josh Cross, cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. Stephanie will be moderating the next installment of the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book discussion series at the Jewish Museum. You can join her June 14th when she'll be talking to novelist Rachel Kadish and historian Lisa Moses Leff. You can find that on Jewish Book Council, Unpacking the Book. Google it. You're smart. You'll find it. And of course, you need to wear and carry Unorthodox too. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Find the latest in shirts, mugs, and stickers to put on yourself and surround your coffee with. I want to remind you that we're doing a special episode on conversion. If you are a convert, please share one minute or less of your story with us. We would love to put it on our show. Call 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. And leave us a little something. Remember to leave your name and where you're from. And finally, remember that our first ever Unorthodox Book Club, early June, we're going to be talking with Ruby Namdar about his book, The Ruined House. It is well worth your time. Our Gentile this week is Linda Curtis. She's the author of Shunned, How I Lost My Religion and Found Myself, a memoir that chronicles her decision to leave her close-knit community of Jehovah's Witnesses, which led to her formerly uh, being shunned by the religion. Linda's now an executive consultant, speaker, and mindfulness teacher in San Francisco. Welcome, Linda. Good morning. Thank you. So one of the reasons we're excited, you know, besides just being excited to have you, is we talk a lot, we, we, we read a lot of stories about um, people leaving, being shunned. Pe- no, leaving, leaving the Jewish community, right? Mm-hmm. We've had Shulam Dean, who has one of those, you know, one of the most popular memoirs about leaving. It's, it's, a, it's a narrative that actually we know pretty well, you know, mm-hmm. the, the process we've seen. It has, it has a, almost an oversized literary presence. Yeah. And there's not only the ultra-Orthodox version of like you leave and they just won't talk to you, but even people who intermarry and their parents have a kind of cultural objection, that right. question of like being sort of othered by that, you know. So it's so refreshing basically to hear this from a different point of view. But before we get <laughs> Other into people it, do it. Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> but, yes. 
Could you tell us a little bit about being a Jehovah's Witness? Because I don't know that many people who are listening maybe don't know. Like, I just, I feel like it's one of the religions people don't actually know that much about. And they maybe have stereotypes about, but don't actually know someone who is. Or don't know that they know someone who is. Can I just ask, did you not except get for, the, Except for Prince. Did you get the door knocking in Great Neck when you were growing up? No. Oh, because I get it once a month. They knock on my doors in New Haven. Okay, like, so then. So oh, no, no. I, I just want to say beyond. A lot of people know Jehovah's Witnesses as the people who knock on doors. Can you flesh the portrait out a little bit for us? Happy to, happy to. Um, Well, I have to say, despite, um, you know, having been shunned by the religion, I really had a pretty cool childhood growing up. I had great parents. You know, it was definitely narrow. It was definitely confined. And um, by confined, I mean what I could watch, the people that I could hang out with, the friends that I could get close to, that was really limited to people in the community, to members of my family that were also Jehovah's Witnesses. But in and around that, you know, a, a middle-class upbringing in Portland, Oregon, to hardworking parents, the values of kindness, love, care for other people, of service. And, and in that was also this... I'm thinking of the word obligation. Uh, Another word that comes to mind is commandment, you know, from the Bible, (laughs) that you actually knock on doors, that you preach, and that you teach to all of the worldly people uh, that you might encounter, either on the door knocking or really to your uh, coworkers, somebody you're with at school, that you actually take the time as an expression of your care and concern for them to preach the good news of the kingdom. So that's where you see people knocking on your door, but also behind that is, you know, really a lot of what at least appeared to me to be very ordinary way of growing up. Something really charming about this, like, I really care about you. So I have some genuinely good news. I'm excited to share this with you. Yes. Someone knocked on my yes. door, be come, come right in. Yeah. I, have some tea. Let's talk. I do that. Yeah. I do that. Um, no, it's, it's the, the theology is apocalyptic, right? That the end of the world could come any moment. Indeed. Was that freaky? Yeah. And I, I talk about that in the book because until I actually got away from the religion, probably 10, 20 years, I didn't realize the impact that that had. But I grew up with this fundamental belief that Armageddon could come any day. And Armageddon was this literal, literal event. I wasn't exactly sure exactly what it was going to be, but the four horsemen of the apocalypse were going to come. We're writing down from Seattle. Probably Seattle, Uh, maybe LA also, you know, I mean, really swarming up up all over, you know, it's just going to, it's apocalyptic. So, you know, not directional, but just chaos. And um, so it was so important, you know, that every day you be mindful of the fact that that could happen. And... so emotionally, this, what, what does that do for you, that, that, that waking up every morning thinking, yeah, today, today may be it? Well, I don't think you really wake up thinking that, actually. After a while, it kind of recedes into the background, and now you're five, and now you're 10, and now you're 15. And my mother grew up, and, and every year she would, as we would go into school, she'd go, wow, I can't believe my oldest, you know, my sister, I'm the youngest in the family, I can't believe my oldest is going to be in high school this year. We're still in this old system, and my oldest is going to high school. And then a few years later, it was me. I can't believe my baby's going to high school, and we're still in this wicked system. So there was this way that it was there. You know, it could happen any time. And I think, Mark, to answer your question, when it really got to me was when I started thinking I would leave. 
Like when I allowed doubts to enter my mind, when I allowed myself to start thinking and looking at other beliefs, other ideas about the world that were not just what I'd always been told and what I'd explored for myself by reading Jehovah's Witness literature from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Now, what is the rest of the world like from the inside? You know, when, you, when you're inside and you look at us, and I don't mean necessarily Jews, I mean people who are not mm-hmm. Jehovah's right. Witnesses. Yeah. What are we? Are we misguided? Are we wicked? Are we, uh, you know, fodder for saving? How do you see us? Um, All of the above? I don't know. I, I would say really more misguided. Yeah. Certainly there is a belief that there are people that are wicked, you know, that really are bad people. Uh, I, I still happen to believe that myself. I think there's a certain amount of evil in the world. But for the most part, these are people that are misguided or uninformed. And uh, to the best of my ability, should you and I meet, mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best to right. witness to you. So the book opens with a, a really moving scene where you basically are are doing the morning knocking and the morning sort of missionary work. And you at the same time have a flourish, you know, you have a corporate career and you knock on the door of someone you work with mm-hmm. without realizing. Will mm-hmm. you tell us what happened and, and where the, how that really does sort of set off a course of events for you? Sure. I, I you know, here comes a guy <laughs> that I've known for years and I know to be a very kind, capable, high-integrity person who I really, really like. And he here he is. And I just jumped into the spiel that I'd I'd said a million times before because I started knocking on doors when I was nine. And this is probably like I'm 30. So I start speaking and I have this experience of just hearing myself for the first time, like I'm an observer over here listening to my words. And I heard them as if for the first time. And it was self-righteous and there was a kind of reproach and a judgment. And, you know, you don't actually say this in literal terms, but what I was saying to this guy is, you're not on the right team. And if you don't get on the right team, you know, Jehovah's team, then you could potentially be destroyed in this coming Armageddon. And when I said that, it just, it really freaked me out. And I I got out of there as quickly as I could. He was very gracious. And uh, that just opened a slight window for me. That discomfort didn't go away. And I allowed myself over the next year to revisit that discomfort, like, whoa, maybe there's another way to look at this. Could it really be that Jehovah God is that exacting, that he would even wipe out this really great person who I know to be a good person? That's where it started, and I I allowed myself to build on that. So tell us about leaving. Well, it was a months, many months long process. I had to build up my courage because I knew what was at stake. My family is very devoted. And in fact, the things that I feared did happen. I mean, they, they shunned me and they did, they did say when I, when I finally left, you know what this means. We, we will not be able to speak to you. So the fear of that, I mean, just the sheer Really, at at some level, there's a terror, right, of being disconnected from all the people that you've known and loved and really having to start over and and doing that at a, in a time when you don't really know what you believe instead. You haven't have, hadn't yet replaced that with any other kind of belief system or even any kind of network of support or community. So believing was hard. It was it was a, a difficult process. 
And so they don't talk to you anymore. They don't. There's there's some contact over the years that has happened when people get sick in the family, when there's serious illness, when there's death. I do have contact there. Um, my father has mellowed over the years. My mother passed away a couple of years ago. And I called him from time to time just to see how he was. He will gladly receive phone calls from me and talk to me. He will never generate a call to me. That's just outside of his comfort level. And and that's different from before I left. There would be times when my dad would pick up the phone and call and we just have these lovely conversations. And and that doesn't happen anymore. It's just, uh, it's just when I generate, he will receive. And has anyone else in your family left? Not in my immediate family. My siblings are still in the religion. And my ex-husband, who I divorced at this time, is still in the religion. Um, I'll say about him, a wonderful, wonderful person. I truly loved him, and he truly loved me. And one of the ways I know that's true is that from time to time, over the years, he also has picked up the phone and just called me and, you know, how are you doing? And, uh, you know... That's a that's a really good thing. I don't think anybody in the religion that talks to people who are disfellowshipped, which is the official term, uh, it's not something you broadcast, you know, when you go back to the congregation. <laughs> Here's what I don't hear in your voice. I don't hear any anger. Yeah, It's really weird because we're Jews. I mean, there would be rage all over the place. <laughs> yeah. S- seriously? There's, there's, yeah. no, there's no kind of like, hey guys, you know, screw you. Like, I'm a good person and you, what right do you have to treat me like that? You're horrible. There's none of that. Well, there was, for sure. Um, And it even took me a while to give myself permission to have the anger because I could justify the actions of my family by the fact that I had done the same thing to people. When I was in the religion and there were people that were disfellowshipped when I was still a Jehovah's Witness, I would certainly walk past them and not look at them if I ran into them on the, the market or, you know, on the street. So... I justified their actions because I knew that they were doing it because they believed it was what God wanted and it's something I used to do. Then a few years on with the help of a good therapist and just really allowing myself to really see the situation more fully for what it was, I definitely felt anger. And I I had to learn that anger has its own wisdom. Anger isn't all bad. I, I think there's a gift to anger and I had to allow myself to feel that and experience it. I get really angry now when I hear about people that are being shunned and mistreated because I know it's very painful. But over time, you know, I've really I've really found a way to forgive my family for these actions. And in, at the end of the day, if I'm going to hold resentments and anger and all this, it's really just another kind of dogma, isn't it? I'm not going to be free right. of the religion if I'm pissed off about the past. Now, I know two, oddly enough, two other people uh, who have left Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and the one thing that they, they have very different stories. The one thing that they do seem to agree on is that there's a sense of loss, not just obviously for the parents, the family, the close connections, but also to the life that was so heavily predicated on community, on mutual support, on really kind of giving you that emotional uh, engine that is really, really hard to get uh, mm-hmm. once you kind of cross the boundary and, and go out to the world, which is much more ambiguous, much more of a struggle. Do you feel the same way? Do, do you miss the kind of sense of security and community that you had back in the day? Not anymore, because I have that in my life now. I've, I've got an amazing community of friends. I have chosen family. 
people have adopted me. I've adopted other people. I've got mothers and sisters and brothers. And and these aren't just religious communities. These are places that I work. These are places. Um, I'm, I'm a mindfulness teacher, so I, I practice mindfulness. So, you know, going to a Dharma talk or being with a Sangha of any stripe feels very connected to me. Uh, but yes, at first, there's a huge loss. I mean, it's very, very painful. And I had to actually go through that process for sure. When you're going through that loss after after disconnecting from the religious community, do you seek out other people who have been disfellowshipped? Is there a... Is there a scene? Uh, is it, are, there, are, there, are there Facebook groups? There must be, right? Absolutely, there are. But keep in mind that for me, I was this process started for me in 1994, 1995. Not a lot of internet out there in right. Facebook pages or right. so online communities. How do you find people who get it? Well, what I, I didn't actually, and and I I remember five years in or so being in Chicago and my boyfriend at the time bringing this ad from the paper saying, here's this Jehovah's Witness support group. And just the reading of the ad sounded like people were really angry. Like it was kind of an anger, angry place to be. An angry font. An angry font, an angry, you know, bold, bold exclamation point. You're shot by these stupid people. <laughs> Something Meet like us that. At, yeah. Something like that. So I had already been uh, out about five years and what really really helped me at first is I went and saw a therapist. When I was still in my marriage and in the religion, I sought out a therapist very quietly because everyone in my support community was witnesses. I didn't have really close, what I would call worldly friends. And I knew anybody I talked to as a witness was going to dissuade me and they would consider seeing a therapist as a sign of you know, an emotional or a spiritual red flag. So I kept that to myself, and that was one of the best things I ever did. And that gave me a grounding. And out of that grounding, I started making connections with friends and really developing meaningful friendships. And then when this boyfriend came along five years later and said, hey, here's this support group, I really... I was on my way and had all the support I needed, and I was just afraid that I would be around a lot of angry people at a time when I was right. still working through that myself. I didn't need to have that fire stoked. Nowadays, there are people, there are support groups out there. I visited some of them, and I think there's some great work, and I think it's a wonderful um, thing that there are these uh, places. So your career has taken an interesting turn mm -hmm. as well. Could you tell us a little bit about Honorable Closures, which is your business that helps others, helps people move on with their lives in many ways? Sure. Well, Honorable Closure is really a way of working with endings, any ending, any ending, exit or goodbye, whether it's a huge one, like leaving a community and being shunned, or it's the end of a, a project or the end of a, a relationship, or it's just, it's a way of honoring what has ended in a way of completing it uh, so that you can move newly into the future and be unencumbered by un unfinished business from the past. So we're not dragging stuff forward from the past. Um, I think it's a one of the ways that I've been able to really be and feel complete with my experience as a witness and then be at peace enough that I could publish a book about that experience. So closure is really a way of just doing inquiry and reflecting and saying, you know, what, what am I grateful for about this experience? What have been the unexpected consequences and positive outcomes that happened from this experience that never would have happened any other way unless this thing had happened, even though it's ending, even though it may have gone south, even though it's time to say goodbye? Since we have a former Jehovah's Witness here, 
what do they think of Jews? Like, what, what's the deal there? Is there anything we need to know? Are we special? In it's anyone? a great question. Are we everyone, bad? Are everyone we has a special less view of bad the Jews, or right? more bad than <laughs> right. other people? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Well, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses take the Bible literally and at face value so that there was definitely this special relationship that Jehovah God had with Abraham and, and therefore with his lineage. Um, at the arrival of Jesus on the scene, that was really... Um, more of a, a fulfillment of a promise to Abraham that, you know, through his seed, this right. would happen. So that's all very much believed and acknowledged, but that um, they are not the only race to be chosen, to be saved, that will survive this apocalyptic Armageddon and, and no make it. But there's no special reverence and or animosity towards not us. At we're all. just We're not just, the, uh, the, just part of the uh, un- unsaved just part of the doomed. Yeah, and another right. fascinating, interesting religion to know and understand so that I might be able to mm-hmm. uh, know how to speak to you right. and convert you if I were to get that oh, wow. lovely opportunity. Um, <laughs> and so, so you of, have a question for us. Yes, one of the opportunities we give our Gentiles of the Week is the opportunity to ask us, this internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts, any question that you want about Jews, Judaism, Judum. What, what, what do you have for Judum. us? Judum. Judum. Oh, this is, well, it's so funny because a vivid memory that I have of my childhood, ironically, is my mother taking me to see um, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, and it was like, whoa. We're and that, so sorry. Oh, my God. That is actually the, so only, that, the and, only Jewish experience many Jewish children have <laughs> right, as well. Well, I want to know, like, what's the Jewish uh, uh, feeling about that movie? Because I saw it. And I was blown away by the scene, you know, when the father shuns his daughter when she mm. marries outside. And it, it had this huge impact on me. Little did I know years later that I would find <laughs> myself in a similar kind of circumstance. But what's up with that movie? And what do, how do Jews feel about shunning? I actually don't know because, you know, You're from I, Israel. I grew up in Israel in which we didn't really watch it. Yeah. It was sort of like, oh, yeah, that's nice. That belongs in the past. Jews, uh, that's us. Right. We're, we're the Jews now. Those Jews don't old really news. matter. So, so I have news, no, huh? yeah, we, we, I don't have any opinion. So when Fiddler on the Roof came out, American Jews hadn't really talked about the shtetl, about the European village in that way in a long time. I mean, the, the, after the Holocaust, there was this kind of code of silence where you didn't talk about the Holocaust because it was so right. destructive and so shameful. And then what you got in sort of the late 50s and the 60s was this renaissance of interest in it as this sort of warm, authentic place back in the old country. And Fiddler on the Roof was a huge part of that. And also the song are amazing. I mean, some people think it's horrible kitsch. I mean, there are people who are just like, it's it's Drek. Like, it's it's silly and stupid and and oversimplification and the shtetl. Of course, the whole point of it is they're being kicked off their, you know, land. They're being marched out of town yep. by the czar. So it's a very sad story. Um, I think the shunning is seen as this sort of like piece of an old world, like most secular Jews who, like ultra-Orthodox Jews wouldn't go see it because it's secular culture. So the kind of mm. Jews who would see it are the ones who have a sort of nostalgia They're cultural Jews who have a sort of nostalgia for that old world. So they're very warm feelings about it. I'll just say one interesting thing. At my grandfather's funeral, um, at the very end, I don't know whose idea this was. My grandfather, very secular guy, left-wing atheistic Jew. At the very end, the hymn we sang was Sunrise, Sunrise. Sunset. It was Sunrise, Sunset, which of course is like a mid-century Tin Pan Alley right. musical theater song from Fiddler of the Roof, but it is assumed oh, this sort of- so emotional. And, and, and hold on, and, and this is, you're really getting to what's bothered me about this the whole time. For sure. I think you would you would understand. I mean, there is something also about this 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 uh, shunning scene, right? Yeah. That, that plays out in a really kind of, 
almost grotesque way because most of the modern viewers don't actually really understand emotionally what's at stake. I mean, when you grow up religious of any religion, it's not just like, oh, leave, it's community, it's a feeling, it's a culture, it's a tradition, it's a heritage. No, no, they're way bigger. We're talking about, you know, one of the greatest um, uh, lines I ever read about about the Puritans. One reason why they were actually gleeful to fight the the, the Brits for for American independence is like after you do battle with the devil all day long, you know, the redcoats are just a nice break. <laughs> Nothing. It's it's kind of that. Like you have to get what's at stake, and what's at stake is pretty much everything. But you're so your guys are glossing over that there is a formal process of excommunication in the Jewish community historically. Yeah, this is what like, I want to hear about. Yeah, there like is? Baruch. Well, Spinoza was excommunicated. Used, like that's, that's very, very. Wait, wait, wait. First of all, it's say. not. It's not really excommunication. Right. It's shunning. They're still Jews, yes. which is important because Catholics are excommunicated. Correct. You're out of communion with like. That's right. You, important so, distinction. It's important distinction. Yeah. The other thing is like, not real. I mean, it's just like your parents stopped talking to you. I mean, it. I don't know. I think there's, that's. I mean, there's the formal process of harem. Is that how you say it? Harem. It's a rabbi says they're yes. in harem. First of all, it's a, it's a it's a it's a rabbinic. It's kind of like you know, it's a decree and it's it's used very. But I think cautiously. I think, so beyond that, there is this thing where in a, a very religious insular family, you leave and you're done. Like there, I think there it it, ha- it functions very much so on a personal personal yeah. level. Maybe without the the rabbinic court or the beit din involved, but. We do it. We yeah. just do it. But yeah. but all Jehovah's Witnesses who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses do it. And the vast majority of Jews who call themselves Jews don't do it because we have more different Including kinds of Judaism. Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, most Jews are not that kind of Jew. Like my ultra-Orthodox family is really, of which I have a lot, you know, is very happy with me. And at any point where I may, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I decided to keep kosher. I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. That's great. But at no point would they not There's no formal name for it. Right. We're not as well organized as what we're saying. Like, <laughs> that's exactly no, right. that's right. We are congregational. Every little community you find will yeah. have its own rules, its own thing. So basically, like, Jews, you know, and then there's always a little cousin who will still call you or email you, as there was in your family, right? right. There are people who who yep. would still talk. So I think, mm-hmm. but we're just less organized <laughs> than the Catholics exactly right. or the Jehovah's. We don't enforce we discipline totally as well. We totally would if we could. If it's we just could. too hard, man. Come on. <laughs> it's an amazing question, though. That's really, really interesting. Linda Curtis, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. The, the book is Shunned, How I Lost Religion and Found Myself. Linda, where can we read more of your work? Where can we find out more about you? People can learn more about me if they go to lindaacurtis.com. That's my website. Learn about Honorable Closure. Learn more about Shund, about the mindfulness work that I do. Appreciate it. Amazing. Thanks so much. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox to the mailbox right, to the mailbox. Two little bits today. First, I just had to read this letter. Dear unorthodox, my boyfriend and I both have major crushes on Mark. Who doesn't? And we do spend a lot of time bonding over our shared attraction. Your dadness is endearing. Your voice is a melody, and you've brought this fabulously gay Jewish couple together in a way you probably least expected. Zachary Payne. All right, but now, that was so obviously since all the mail tends to be I'm in Team Liel, I'm in Team Stephanie. You got this, yeah. You ha, you've yeah. been waiting two and a half years I've for been this moment. Two and a half years for this hundred and thirty some episodes. Moment. Thank you, Zachary. Thank you, Zachary with a K. Pain. I love you guys. <laughs> Write to us again. All right, uh, and now to the voicemail line. I'm calling you for advice. I'll try to make it quick, but it is kind of a long story, so bear with me. I was raised in suburban New York. Uh, my dad is an Orthodox rabbi's atheist son, and my mom's a cradle Episcopalian. So I was raised half and half. And really what that meant, we had a Seder with Easter eggs, and we lit a menorah next to the Christmas tree. But we never talked about God. I had uh, a lot of the ritual, but none of the substance. Hebrew school dropout, but my rabbi grandfather taught me Haftorah, had a bar mitzvah. Meanwhile, I was singing in a church choir. Uh, in college, I studied religion, and, and in grad school, I fell in with a really wonderful Christian community, captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and I was baptized. Now, 10 years later, I am teaching world religions at a Christian independent school in the South, which is about as far from suburban New York as you can get. And when I hear the, the banter, the interruptions, the, <laughs> the awful Nazi jokes on the podcast, I, I recognize this kind of atmospheric New York Jewishness that I've left by becoming a Christian and moving south, and I miss it, and I miss what it could have been for me if I had been part of a stronger community growing up. Combine this with the fact that I teach Judaism in my context of World Religions course and the, the recent realization that there are just no more practicing Jews in my family. Uh, between death and intermarriage, they, they got them all, and I'm feeling kind of lost and unmoored from my Jewishness. Now, the question is, I have a daughter, and I'm a professional Christian, I guess you could say, and my wife is a recovering Catholic, but how do I raise my daughter with a sense of Jewishness? Am I even allowed to do this? When I was baptized, did I give up any claim to my inherent tribal identity? Um, this is something I'm deeply and thoroughly conflicted about, so I'm calling some podcasters about it, as one does. Uh, Danielle, I, I love the show. Thank you for the work, and I, I really hope you can help me out here. Bye. 
This is an amazing phone call. It's astonishing. Can we could we begin by saying, and I think we'll all agree, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And also, man, you know, we're honored. It's it's never too late. You're always welcome. It's not. You know, it's not it's not the kind of club where where you leave once there's no reentry. Uh, you know, if if you feel deep in your heart, deep in your soul, that this is uh, this is what stirs within you, uh, you know, come come uh, em- embrace us uh, as as we still always embrace you. But I think that the kind of most uh, telling tale uh, that I got, and and the kind of real one concrete bit of advice that that i may have is is the thing that he said about you know growing up it was kind of like all about the emotions and never about the god and the relationship i think i think that's a really um insightful observation i I think when when you're trying to raise a child children uh, contrary to popular opinion are not dumb you know they know right away when you're trying to kind of lord something over them that's just you know a charade and when you really have a deep spiritual connection to something and i think once you open that emotional pathway right once you actually have your kids begin to imagine what their relationship with god might be and 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 i don't say this in a, a sort of like you know dogmatic uh, forceful way i don't think you should ever tell a child well this is what we believe and you believe the same but once you kind of encourage them to have that inner dialogue uh, and and kind of try to figure out you know the, the kind of real theological underpinnings of what they believe. I think the choice of religion then becomes, in a weird way, a much easier question, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they don't feel like they're choosing because of external circumstances. Oh, I'm going to do this because my great grandmother was this, but my great grandfather was that, and how do I choose? They just kind of really have an innate sense of what is right for their soul. Does that make sense to you? I, it does, and I, I guess what I would say is, look, you obviously are in some sort of conflict, and and uh, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you. You've done a good enough job of that yourself. You were captivated by Jesus of Nazareth. Guess what? So are a lot of us. Like every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, I think, well, that's that's about the best rabbinic teaching I've ever seen, right? Now, I'm not a Christian, right? And I, I don't believe that he was crucified and rose again. And, you know, and I don't know that I could face my belief in that even if I did believe it. Like my my tribalism is so strong and my commitment to being a Jew and part of the Jewish people. But I honor you for having, you know, listened to your inner call. But obviously you feel like that's not the end of the story. So here's what I would say to you as a parent. Be authentically you. Like, when your daughter's old enough, say say what you just said to us to her, yeah. and say like I feel in a lot of ways Jewish, and play our podcast for her and and exp- and let her into Interrupt yourself her when she speaks. Interrupt <laughs> her, like be authentically you, so that she's in relation to your own Jewish quest. And like if you just live in authenticity with her, that will be more than a lot of Jewish parents do with their Jewish children. Preach. Amen. Yep. So, but please, sir, let us let us know how it goes. Stay in touch. All right, Mazel tovs. Uh, Stephanie, you have a Mazel tov? I was really deeply moved by our conversation with Linda Curtis, and I just want to throw her a Mazel tov for just that, the humanity with which she seemed, I know it's been a while and it's a long time coming, but there's there's such a peace and calm that she exuded that I think we should all be striving for, especially those who have had such a sort of traumatic spiritual experience. Totally. Amen. Liel? So I'm a week late with this, uh, but to Harry Anderson... Mm. A great magician, a great actor, just a wonderful human being who just wanted to make us all happy. And to all these uh, late nights that I stayed up in Israel watching Night Court, which is on at 11.30 at night on Israeli TV, man, Godspeed. All rise. 
My Mazel Tov is to Christopher Leiden and Radio Open Source. Uh, he's one of the original podcasters. He took his show from Boston Public Radio onto podcast and it's back on radio. But they did an episode recently that has kind of already become a cult classic. They did an hour on the making of Van Morrison's record Astral Weeks. Oh, amazing. And it, in which he interviews the original flutist and they listen to how the tracks were laid on. And like, I know people who don't like Van Morrison at all, who say, yeah, but that's the best hour of radio I've heard in a long time. I have to listen to this. I'm obsessed you, with the album. You all have to go listen to Radio Open Source. Their John Ashbery episode is also excellent. They just go very deep on something from a lot of points of view in one hour, but listen to the episode on Astral Weeks with Van Morrison. Uh, also, I just want to g- opportunistically give a mazel tov to Ruby Namdar, author of The Ruined House, which continues to haunt me a month after I finished reading it. And of course, he'll be on in June uh, as our first ever book club author. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call and leave a voicemail, 914-570-4869. For merchandise, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes. It is edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Book them for a show. You will not regret it. Mailbox music by the one and only Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Leah Gavrielli. If you think your rabbi should be hired or engaged for no money to supervise us, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We record this week, as so many others, at Argo Studios here in Manhattan. It's where Paul Ryan plans to hang out come next January. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>